When a filmmaker creates a film, which is one of the hardest things to do, they have so many things ahead of them. Raising money, finding a cast, finding venues, getting insurance, finding a crew, finding a star, finding a director. It's literally never-ending, and I don't wish it on my worst enemy. <laughs> one of the steps a film producer, or which is the filmmaker, undergoes is deciding when and if they should go to film festivals. Most of the time, they go this route unless a studio or a distributor is on board from the start. The purpose is to find a distributor, among other things. Today, one of the main reasons film festivals exist is for distributors to find films. But that wasn't always the case. Today, we're going to learn about the history of film festivals, how music licensing works with films going into film festivals, and we're going to talk with Derek Horn, a film festival programmer from the Annapolis Film Festival. Let's dive in. Welcome to the License Your Music podcast, where I'm here to help give you all the tools you need to license your music for film, TV, ads, trailers, and more so that you can earn passive income and obtain creative freedom. I'm your host, Jody Friedman. Thanks for spending some of your time with me today. If you haven't been by our site at licensedyourmusic.com, please come by. And if you're looking to actually break into music licensing, I put together this free ebook called How to Get Your Music Heard by Music Supervisors. It's completely free. It's a five-step guide where I put together five steps for you to follow. So go ahead, download that, follow those steps, and start getting heard now. I am here today with our guest, Derek Horn, who is the film festival programmer for the Annapolis Film Festival. And today we're going to be talking about how when a creator creates a film, there's certain processes that filmmaker has to take uh, or generally takes, uh, generally speaking. But before we dive into that, Derek, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about your story and how you got here. Sure. So um, Jody and I met over a decade ago when I was working at a film school. Uh, now I think it's ranked number five in the country, Chapman University, you may have heard of it. Um, and I would send students to intern for him. And But actually, I think we met through a mutual uh, musician friend, uh, Kathy Compton, her band Panda Transport, which you represented. And um, I was helping to get her music onto a TV show, Grey's Anatomy. So, I, you know, and then after that, I think I might have sent other musicians or bands your way or told them about your service. Um, and then what's interesting is I just moved back to L.A. last year and I was programming a festival in Tampa. And I noticed Jody was the music supervisor for a film called First Blush. So I called him up because I didn't have any way of getting a hold of the director. And he put me in touch with the director and I programmed it. So thanks to Jody, the music supervisor, a film got programmed in a festival. And it, it was a real hit, by the way. Everyone loved it. Um, oh, that's awesome. So, yeah, I programmed various festivals and um Right now, it's something I do remotely. I've programmed um, a lot of different type of festivals. For five years, I did the Hot Springs Documentary Festival in Arkansas, of all places. It's the oldest documentary festival in the country. It's Academy accredited, which, which means, you know, a short film, if it wins awards there, it can be nominated for an Oscar. So that's what Academy accredited means. Um, I'm oh. currently programming for the Annapolis Film Festival. I program short films for the Santa Fe Independent Film Festival in New Mexico. Um, I program the Tampa Gay Lesbian Festival. So there's all kinds of festivals for different audiences and, and 
types and genres. Um, but my, my favorite of them all is the Annapolis Film Festival, um, which is happening this April. So I'm in the midst of programming for it now. This was the beautiful program we did last year. It was supposed to be awesome. for March 26th or March 16th through the 19th, but you can imagine what happened this year. Um, <laughs> I flew out there on, um, was it March 10th, the day that everything changed? And then the 11th, we had to cancel and put it all online virtually. So we, ha we had an oh opening night ready with uh, my favorite actress, uh, Kristen Scott Thomas coming in for opening night. She would have been on the red carpet. Um, this film, Military Wives, which was the perfect film for Annapolis, you know, with Navy Town, Naval Academy. Um, but what's yeah. interesting is in, in programming a festival, you have to kind of um, look for films, right? You go out there and you scout them. So previous to last March, I, I attended the Toronto Film Festival in Canada last September, 2019. And I had my eye on this film, Military Wives, for about two years, ever since it was announced as being in production. So even before it was made, I was tracking this film. I went there in person. I was there for the, the world premiere of Military Wives. I rushed the director as soon as he was walking off the red carpet and gave him my card and said, I want this for opening night. And so it was a long journey to get this film. Uh, we were gonna have, you know, Kristen there. She, she was confirmed to be there, the director, Peter Cataneo, and then we were gonna have a live military wives choir sing afterwards. Oh, wow. It was gonna be the most fabulous opening night. Of course, COVID happened and travel plans got canceled. So we ended up having to put the whole festival online, which was a learning experience. Um, and it's what most of the festivals have done this year. A few have been able to do what they call hybrid festivals where, you know, most of the festival takes place online, but they supplement it with a few drive-in movie screenings. Um, oh, cool. Uh, you know, the festival, Jody, you probably know the Florida Festival in Orlando. They actually did some the screenings in theater at the Enzion, if you can believe that, oh, socially wow. distanced. So, um, yeah. but it's, it's a different world. A lot of festivals had to cancel this last year, especially the ones that are hugely dependent on an outside um, audience coming to them, like Telluride or yeah. Napa Valley. Those are what we call destination festivals. They're really cool places. People like to travel and take a vacation. Annapolis, you know, we're lucky to be more community-based festivals. So we have, you know, a, a ready audience that was looking forward to the festival and still wanted to see the film. So we were able to put it online and not lose our audience. Um, the festival in Tampa that I did was completely virtual online this year. And, you know, we'll see how long it'll be until festivals can go back into in-person festivals. So that's sure. in a nutshell. That's what I've been up to. <laughs> yeah. So um, are you finding, well, look, before we get in yep. too deep into that, um, let's start with the basics of film festivals. What are, like, why do they exist? What is the purpose? Why, you know, when I was starting out, I'd go to see movies in theaters. I had no idea there were film festivals, right? Because it just wasn't part of my world. Right. Um, can you explain to the listeners what a film festival, what purpose it serves? Sure. Well, in the days before the internet and YouTube and Netflix, you you know there wasn't a lot of ways to see films that were foreign films or independent films, th things that didn't have a regular theatrical release um, commercially. So. Festivals sprung up as um, 
as a way to celebrate the art of film. So it's not just the commodity of film and making money, it's about celebrating the art form. So you would see movies that didn't have to conform to these formulas that a studio um, put together in order to make money. Um, I think in the 90s, when I really uh, first started attending the Sundance Film Festival, what I loved about independent cinema was that it would tell those stories that the studios didn't always tell and it would, um, it would give extra time to linger on the, on, the, on, the, on the acting and the dialogue. And just, you know, I really enjoyed that, the authenticity of the storytelling. But then I think in the, in the 2000s, you know, studios started having their little independent divisions and they started making these more um, daring and creative and honest stories. And so now I find festivals have had a little bit of a, um, a personality change or, or an identity crisis where it's not necessarily about telling the stories the studios won't tell. It's actually, it's become more of a career development tool because so many people have wanted to become filmmakers. I mean, the number of film submissions, you know, have multiplied exponentially since the nineties. I mean, when I was working at the film school in the two thousands, it was so hard to, make the students understand the kind of competition they were up against. And only after I became a programmer myself did I realize <laughs> the huge amount yeah. of content out there. And what you're facing as a programmer is this huge tidal wave of content coming at you. And you have to, you only have a few slots to fill in the festival. So until you're on that other side of the fence and you see the competition, you really get a perspective. So now I, I find what my job as a programmer is, is, is kind of, um, it's the commodity of attention span. I, I'm the curator who kind of tries to get people's attention to focus on this project or this film is, you know, something worthwhile to watch. I mean, you all probably have Netflix subscriptions or Amazon and you know how they've got their, their, um, their, their formulas or their algorithms that tell you what they think you'll be interested in. And I can't tell you how many times they get it wrong with me. It's like, I'm not interested in any of those films. Your algorithm sucks. But um, I find a festival is a chance to, to experience something that's been curated by human beings. And with the many different festivals I've programmed, I've gotten to know different type of audiences and what kind of films are appropriate for each festival. Um, but going back to your original question, Jody, I think festivals serve three purposes right now. They serve as a, well, the big festivals like Sundance, they serve as a marketplace, you know, um, for distributors to go in and, and uh, discover new films and hopefully acquire them or yeah. they or there it's a marketing launch pad for distributors who already have a film the second thing is it's a like i said a career development tool for filmmakers who want to build up their resume by placing their film in a festival and getting the laurel wreath symbol that's pretty much a stamp of approval look my film was accepted here or even better it won an award and then the third thing that i think festivals are good for right now and it's what we're definitely realizing during this pandemic um it's served it's sort of a community event um, um and so the festivals that seem to do really well are the ones that are really tapped into their community. And it's a place for people to experience a film together and then discuss it afterwards in a Q and A. So yeah. it, 
you know, for someone like me who wants to be build their career on curating, it doesn't leave much room for me because <laughs> if you're not one of the big market festivals, which is just all about releasing the latest content to the world. And yeah. then if you're not, you know, I, I'm not in it for building anyone else's career like I was when I worked at a film school. So, you know, what does it gain me to just have kind of open mic night? Anyone play your film? Um, and then the third thing would be a community thing is great, um, but sometimes it limits the films you program to exactly what would interest that community. So mm. the place to be able to be creative and curate just fabulous artistic films regardless of the community, where does that exist? I think it exists online. It exists, you know, in, um, I guess a lot of people have YouTube channels now where they can, there's a lot of different short film channels springing up. So I just love to right. ask all of you, if, if any of you have experienced a festival or been to one, um, so I know how much I need to give you a, like a, a history of festivals lecture. <laughs> I've actually never been to a film festival myself. Really, Jody? And your films have played yeah. at big festivals. I know. And I know. I've always them. wanted to go to, uh, there was one year, what was it that was at, um, at Sundance? It might have been Won't You Be My Neighbor before it hit theaters. I programmed that I at Hot Springs. <laughs> oh, you did? Yes, love that. Awesome. It should have yeah, been Oscar that's... nominated. It really should have. I, I don't know why it... Yeah. it... But, who knows? Who knows? But um, yeah. So let's say I'm a filmmaker. I apply to a film festival and I get accepted. Uh, what happens next? Okay. So if you get accepted, well, it depends. Are you a short filmmaker? I mean, not short, but are you the maker of a short <laughs> film or a feature length film? Uh, well, uh, let's say a feature film. Okay, so a lot of times with a feature film, especially if you're accepted into a big market type of festival like Sundance, you'll probably want to get yourself a producer's rep um, or at least have a publicist on your team um, because, or you'll need an, a, an attorney uh, in case people want to acquire your film, you're going to want to make sure to review the contract. So I think a producer's wow. rep can also help you with strategizing how to promote your film. Um, you're definitely gonna wanna to bring a volunteer street team with you to canvas the town. And, and obviously we're talking pre-pandemic festival experience. Right, yes, yeah, um, pre-pandemic. So, so, so it sounds like in normal times, deals are deals done on the spot or is it, hey, let's talk after the festival and then they get in touch and negotiate? Both. Both. Um, yeah. I mean, after Sundance every year, there's the list of films that were picked up. And then for months afterwards, there's still ripple yeah. effects of films being picked up. Um, and then, like I said, many distributors now go into a festival like Sundance already owning a film. And it's, it's always disappointing for us programmers that are there to scout films when a film starts rolling and immediately has the Netflix logo. And you hear this collective groan throughout the audience like well there's another film we could just take off our list you know we're not even not even going to be able to touch that film so it's that's yeah. the, the interesting thing about festivals now are um there's become there's less and less content available for um a festival to program as, as particularly a smaller regional festival um short films are a different game ball game you can just I always say if a festival doesn't have good short films, they're just being lazy because all you have to do is 
look up films online and send emails to them yeah. and nine times out of 10, the director will be thrilled to give you their film. But when it comes to feature film, you know, you can't always have the films that you dream of showing um, because the distributor right. won't let you have it. Um, so mm. going back to answer your question, if you want, Jody, if, if I can share my slideshow, I can bring up the um, slide about what to do when you get to a festival, <laughs> the things you want sure. to do. Um, I'm gonna share the screen here. And guys, we're, we're, we're gonna ultimately talk about, we're gonna shift and talk about music licensing and how that plays into all this. But the reason we're going through this is just to understand, you know, the people that we're pitching our music to for placement, they're filmmakers, they're producers. And this is understanding their mindset and what they have to think about when creating a film. So um, this, is, this is really just amazing insight. So please, So I always tell thank you. filmmakers what you want to get done at a festival, obviously network, but you want to get awards. That's always nice. You want to get press coverage to add to your press kit or your website. Um, if, if you want to maybe get a development deal, I know there's um, the short film, how many of you saw Thunder Road? Um, Jim mm -hmm. Cummings is the director. And while, he, yes, Laura. And you're from New Jersey, so you know the song, the Bruce Springsteen song, I'm sure. So, you know, they didn't, they um, made a lot of money off of their short, but it was not the short film itself. It was the development deal that came afterwards, as you probably know, that that website full screen gave them a development deal to, to create a series, like a dozen new shorts. So oh, wow. a lot of time the sh for a short film, filmmaker, your short is the calling card um, that gets you attention, but you want to always make sure to have other projects ready to go to pitch, other scripts written. So, um, and then distributor, it's tricky. With the internet has kind of ruined it for short films. On one hand, to make money, it's it's been a great thing to, to get, bring exposure and get attention for the short films. But you know, the days are past when HBO would buy your short film for, you know, a thousand bucks a minute. So if you had a 10 minute short, you could make $10,000. And then in, in Europe and internationally, a lot of um, their television channels buy short films. It's, there's a much more of a culture interest for short films abroad. But oh, here, interesting. obviously the internet has created more of an appetite for short form content. Um, so some of the other goals at a festival, you know, it's always fulfilling for a filmmaker to do a Q&A with an audience and see the audience's reaction. Um, and I feel bad that they're missing out on that this year. You know, I've done a few virtual Q&As with filmmakers and, but it's just not the same as being in the room and seeing them all collectively laugh at all the right parts of your film. Um, and I yeah. always say, if none of these things happen at the festival, the least you can do is try to get an invitation to another festival because programmers mm. go to festivals to scout films. And so be on the lookout. And, and so that's, that's basically that. Um, but I have this whole sure. slideshow that, um, I, that kind of takes you through the history of festivals and we can just, we can, well, Jody, you tell me, what would you like me to talk about next with festivals for those of you who don't understand what they are? Yeah, um, I think it's it's interesting to know the history of it. So yeah, okay. why, let, let's talk about it a bit. And, and I, I wanna say, um, you know, guys, 
most everyone on here is a musician and anyone listening is wanting to get their music licensed. Um, the, the most comparable thing is like South by Southwest. It's a, it's a chance to go play your songs. If you're in a band and perform, you apply, if you get accepted, you get to perform in, in, in front of industry execs and you hope to make deals. And that's, I think, the best comparison I can think of for film festivals. You're, you're creating this property, you're going to shop or this piece of art and you're going to shop it and hoping to make deals. And like, like Derek said, get invited to another festival. And it's the same with South by people go and perform at South by, and then, you know, they get invited to the next music festival. And that's the stepping stone towards getting a distributor, which is a record label. And for film festivals and filmmakers that it's a, in a lot of ways, like Derek explained, it's career development and it's a stepping stone towards getting that distributor, towards getting a deal with Amazon or Hulu or Netflix or whomever, Lionsgate, whomever's there acquiring content. So, yeah. And so, but long before South by and Sundance existed, I mean, can, can you even imagine a world where they didn't exist? I, I, it boggles my mind that Sundance didn't actually come to exist until the eighties or the late seventies, but it wasn't called Sundance until the mid eighties, but long before Sundance, there was the, the most famous one of them all. Well, second famous, what do, you, what do you think is the oldest festival that was ever started? And it's not on this. Conference. Oh, gosh. Oh, yeah, no, I have no Any idea. <laughs> What's Tribeca? the most famous festival you think of in Europe? Okay. Yeah. So you are so close, Laura. Cannes was the second festival, um, and it was founded in response to the very first one, which was Next Country Over. In Spain or? Other direction. Oh man, tell us. Going east, oh, wow. east of okay. France. <laughs> wow. So Venice was the first founded in 1932. But if you can imagine during those years with Mussolini, uh, <laughs> the dictator, um, he kind of had control over the artistic um, integrity of the festival. I mean, they gave out awards called the Mussolini Cups. And in 1938, Jean Renoir's film um, was snubbed in favor of the Nazi propaganda film by Lenny Reifenstahl. So France wow. decided to start their own festival in 1939, but <laughs> right on the night of their opening night, um, <laughs> the Germans <laughs> attacked Poland and they had to cancel the rest of the festival. Um, oh, wow. So those are the two oldest festivals followed by, um, okay, here, let's see. Carlo Vivari, which is fabulous in the Czech Republic. But then of course, mm. <laughs> with the communists coming in, they were forced to alternate every year with Moscow. <laughs> so mm. It's a very interesting sordid history of all these European festivals. Then there's this gorgeous Locarno festival. Could you imagine seeing a film there in the piazza wow. outside? Isn't that fabulous? Um, so that's, that's in awesome. Switzerland. Then there is, um, Edinburgh, Scotland, which claims to be the longest continuously running festival because there were no interruptions or cancellations. Um, then <laughs> there was the is the Berlin Film Festival, which is you know relatively newer compared to the others. Started founded in 1951. Um, then in here in the U.S., San Francisco is the oldest, founded in 1957 the oldest, you know, real legit festival. Um, New York and Chicago are next. And then 
Telluride, which to me mm. was like the original Sundance. You know, it's up in a beautiful mountain town and it was really about the, and, and it's interesting because Telluride is not considered a market festival. The industry goes there, but they go for like a film vacation. They don't want to talk business. They just want to enjoy the films. And, you know, you'll, the celebrities are walking around on street at the, at the, at the Labor Day picnic. Um, and basically the exciting thing about this festival, it's my favorite one. If you ever have a chance to go now, of course, this year it was canceled because like I said, they're the type of festival that really relies on outside people coming into town. People don't yeah. want to go online and watch these films. Although that's what Sundance is doing this year. Sundance, I've got an industry badge and I've, had to make all my ticket selections yesterday and it's all going to be online. So I don't have to, I don't have to trudge out to park city and freeze my butt off and pay for exorbitant lodging. I can just enjoy right. it here by the fire. Um, and then um, after Telluride, I would say Toronto, um, it, which used to be called the festival of festivals, <clears throat> then Sundance, which started in 1978 as the U S festival, Robert Redford's Sundance Institute took over in 85. Festival name changed in 91. So mm -hmm. it's hard to believe there was a time before Sundance. Um, South By launched in 87 as a music conference, Jody. I didn't realize it, it went back that far. Um, they added the film component in 94. Hmm. So I just remember South By being the place when, when all the dot-com craze happened in the late 90s. I thought that's when South By really took off. Because um, did, mm. did they add an interactive component at some point? Yeah, they did. Yeah. And then um, Slam Dance, the alternative to Sundance, which launched a whole a bunch of um, copycat festivals, <laughs> as well as, uh, you know, plenty of festivals around the country have their alternative festival. Um, and then, there's a festival called Lap Dance. Yes, there was. It was, um, I think, Troma Films oh sponsored it. <laughs> and yeah. <laughs> And then, and there was Schmooze Dance, which always starts with a Seder. <laughs> it's a Jewish oh my festival. Gosh. I've been to that one in Park City. That's amazing. Yeah. And yeah. they all take place during Sundance because they want to capitalize off the industry and the, and the press that are already there. So, but this year it's interesting Our because Slam Dance, let's go back a page, because there is no physical presence in Park City this year, it's interesting to note that Slam Dance is taking place in February and you can watch it all online. And I, I, they were giving out free festival passes last week, but now I think they might just be $10 for an all access pass. So hmm. Sundance is still taking place the last week of January. Um, and it's probably still gonna be hard to get tickets, but Slam Dance, I'd, I'd give it a shot. If, if you want to experience a festival online. Tribeca yeah. um, started in 2002. They claim it was a PR response to 9-11, but I know people, they were working on organizing it before 9-11 happened, mm. but they just, you know, um, it was it was something to build up the, the morale again. Um, yeah. And then this is the one that I program, so I threw that in there. <laughs> I'm very yeah. proud of this festival. Um, so yeah, and and then I you know I like to break up festivals into different types, but we can Jody, do you have any questions? No, it's uh, fascinating. It's all fascinating. Um, let's let's go. Uh, I, I mean, I, I do want to talk about music licensing because I think that sure. uh, people are 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 wanting to hear about that, and that's so when you're um, 
let's say, I mean, you're an indie artist and sometimes uh, these festival filmmakers will actually find bands online. You might get contacted at some point by a a filmmaker and say, Hey, I love your song. I want to put it in my film. I have no money, you know, and that's usually how it goes with filmmakers, especially that are submitting to film festivals, Um, right? Unless they have a, a distribution deal in place or some angel investor on board they're self-financed for mo- for the most part. Right, Derek, would you, would you agree or? For the indie filmmakers? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so they'll approach, they'll approach you and claim poverty, which is true. Uh, and you're kind of left in this position as the creator of your product and your piece of art as well. This is a cool opportunity. I want to participate in this, but uh, should I be charging him? And if so, what should I charge? And what this created is this um, type of license called a festival license. And what the proper thing to do when you're applying for film festivals, if I'm a filmmaker and I'm producing a film and I come to you and I say, you know, let's say I have 10 songs in the film and let's say I'm willing to spend $2,000. It's like the most I can shell out. So um, $200 a song is really what I have. So I might come to you and say, I've got 200 bucks for a festival license and I'll pay you $200. And this is a a low, I think that's a low fee. Uh, A typical fee for film festivals would be, I'd say anywhere from 250. I've seen it go up to 4,500, 5,000 for the major artists. Um, But actually a a very major artist did one for 1500 recently. And so there's some dynamics there. If they believe in the project, they'll still support it. So you're left in this, position, you've got to decide, is the film something that I want to support and want my art to be affiliated with? It's not about the 200 bucks at that point, right? It's about supporting the art, but exposure. Yes. Getting the exposure, having your song in this film, getting the credit is, is going to be great for you. Um, Getting paid is important to uh, maintain value for your copyright. I don't ever really advise you to give it away for free because here's the thing. If the filmmaker uses your song basically as a promotional tool within the film to support a scene or to use during the end titles or something. And then they get distribution. They're going to get funding for that film. So what you tend to do is you do a festival license up front with a back-end step deal. And you can say upon distribution, you want an additional fee for your copyright. So you could say, I'll do a $250 festival license and upon distribution, I want $1,000 for those all media rights. And that's kind of a, a typical unknown, you know, low end deal for someone just wanting exposure, $250 license for one year to shop the, that film at film festivals around the world or around North America or wherever they want to shop it. Um, and then upon distribution, you get another fee. And you can go further with that. You can do a step deal that says upon, and this is in normal times, not COVID era, upon 2 million in gross box office sales, you get another bonus, another thousand. Upon 4 million in gross box office sales, you get another thousand dollars. And you can go up 6 million, 8 million, 10 million, and and that's that. So there's a lot of ways you can do the deal. But ultimately, they're going to ask for all media rights. Usually you, you want to say, you know, I'm, I'd rather just do a, a festival license if that's okay. It's up to you at the end of the day, but um, I recommend doing a festival license. And then if they get a distributor, get a bonus, get something as a bonus, even if it's another 250 upon distribution, it's something to show that in good faith, they're going to take care of you. I've heard a lot of um, 
filmmakers, um, they're encouraged to get the, the full rights at the outset, because if you just yeah. get the festival rights and then go back and renegotiate with a distributor attached, a publisher might charge a lot more knowing now they have leverage. So it's better to do, like you said, Jody, the step deal right up at the beginning. That's for filmmakers. I, but as a musician, yeah. I don't know if it's better, better. <laughs> well, it's, it, it just, yeah. And it, you know, it depends on the deal. If I'm a lot of times, if I'm music supervising a film, that's going to festivals, they do want us to get all media rights. So I'm not going to go out for all media rights for $250 though. And right. I tell them, you know, here's what it's going to cost. Um, if someone wants those rights up front, it's, it's my job as a supervisor to, you know, deliver to them, but be, I can't go to a major publisher or a major artist or even an indie artist and say, I'm going to give you 250 bucks for all media rights. I won't even take those jobs anymore because I don't want to be that guy. You know, it's like. Um, but it's interesting, Jody, we yeah. had a, a student film at Chapman that got into the Seattle Film Festival. And it was like one of our first films to do that. And I remember he had uncleared music over his final credits. So I told him yeah. to switch out the music with, once again, my friend, Kathy Compton, who you represented, and she put one of her tracks, yeah. which fit the theme of the movie. And it was, she did it for free because at the time we were just trying to get her exposure. And then, you know, we got her music on Grey's Anatomy, but it's funny yeah. because the Duffer brothers who went to Chapman when I was sending out their thesis film, entitled Eater, uh, the closing music used Janis Joplin, take another little piece of my heart. And I remember oh. we sent that out to a few festivals. There was no rights cleared for that. And I think we stopped oh doing that because this was 2005 before Chapman was becoming a really big deal. And so we knew that could be a legal liability. So we stopped sending it to festivals. I think they got nervous about that. I was starting to do really well in festivals, but I, you know, the, the plot so perfectly hinged because it was about this cannibalistic shapeshifter, you know, huh. take a little piece of my heart or, um, and it, and it, and it fit the story, but sometimes it's best, I guess, to, um, you can put in a temp track of music and then find a composer or a musician to recreate a similar song or sound. What, what do you think about that? Yeah. Of yeah. Well, yeah, you, that's usually what happens if, if someone has a popular song in that they got festival rights for, they didn't get all media rights and the publisher is going to charge an exorbitant fee, then it's the music supervisor's job to find suitable alternatives that sound like that song. So a little piece of my heart by Janis Joplin, I mean, she's got such a unique sound. So the job of the supervisor would be to find something that instead of paying $50,000, it's gonna cost them a thousand or $2,000 from an indie artist that sounds like Janis Joplin or has a similar vibe or at least serves the same intention. So lyrically would play to that storyline. Um, sounds like that was like the, the mind flayer beginnings from Stranger Things, that's just totally. crazy. Well, so, you know, in fact, but, I think yeah. Eater, E-A-T-E-R, um, you can see it online yeah. and I think it still has the music in there. I don't know, check it out. How, do, yeah. how is that, how does that work when it comes to YouTube licensing? I mean, I know YouTube will flag videos and take it off if it has uncleared music, but I think 
that Duffer Brothers short film is up on Vimeo and I don't know how they're getting away with it. Maybe they have gone back and paid for the rights since then. I mean, they could certainly afford it now. Um, yeah, with their their high profile, I would assume at by now they would have gone back because if it's on Vimeo and they didn't get the rights, and I don't I mean, even know if it's, it's questionable because at, who put it up there? Yeah, it it's, it, it's possible. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, did they maybe they made a deal and used a Janis Joplin song in Stranger Things, and they said, "Well, we'll give you this, and if you let us leave this up, you know, who knows?" It's uh, I, I know YouTube. They won't make you take it down. You can. Um, they give you the option of taking it down or you can attach ads to it and allow it to stay up, but you can't monetize it if it's using uncleared music. Uh, they won't, unless you get a direct request from the publisher saying, take this down, you don't have the right. YouTube system will automatically just say, allow us to attach ads or replace it or take it down. See what happened with um, some of the trailers I put up on our YouTube channel for the Tampa festival, if it had, some of the trailers used music that was um, blocked. So certain countries couldn't access that trailer. It was bizarre. Like uh, yeah. all of uh, Denmark couldn't watch this trailer, but everywhere else in the world could. So I, yeah. I guess, I don't know if that's the publisher that would have flagged that or if YouTube actually yes. has a team of. Uh, that's a great question. I don't know the technical aspects, how they get that done, but it's geolocking and it's part of quoting on a song. When you quote for a territory for a trailer, if they want it for a lower fee, you say, all right, well, we can't grant world rights, but we can geolock it to North America only. Right. You know, you can, or, or North America and Asia only, you know? Well, here's another interesting question that, that surrounds um, playing uncleared music at a film festival. You know, um, as a festival programmer, when we accept a film, we make the filmmaker sign a contract of screening agreement. And it says that they indemnify us, that they have, they claim they have all rights. So if right. a music, if we play a film at a festival with uncleared music, we won't get sued, but the filmmaker could yeah. potentially get sued. But I mean, what's the worst yeah. that's going to happen? It's usually a cease and desist order, take it down or stop screening it. But it could happen. It could result in a lawsuit. Now, I know um, yeah. when I used to program at the Newport Beach Festival way back in 2005. Um, that's one I've been to. That, okay, I remember now. I've been to that one. Because <laughs> it's in Orange County, California, <laughs> right? Yeah. Neighborhood. Um, we used to do a high school showcase and we would allow high school film, student films to be screened even if it had uncleared music because we didn't charge admission for the screening. We weren't yeah. making money off of it. So I guess it was an educational sort of purposes. Yeah. So Fair use kind of thing. But I'd still, I mean, legally, is that is that valid to still use uncleared music? Well, <clears throat> fair use is a form of defense. So it only comes up if you get sued. Okay. So there you go. I know that Sundance, I remember the year I was working at Sundance, I think it was 2002 when that Nick Broomfield documentary about Kurt Cobain was showing and Courtney Love had it stopped. I think it had one screening yeah. and then they had to cancel all the rest because I think the documentary was an unflattering portrait of her and, and yeah. um, you know, accused certain nefarious things about her and the death of Kurt Cobain. Um, but she right. used the uncleared music as an excuse to get the film stopped. So, but Sundance was ready to play this film that didn't have all the music cleared. So I think there are wow. festivals that take their chances sometimes. I mean, they, they had that film, um, 
the t uh, Escape from Tomorrow, which was filmed illegally at Disney World, um, and they played it huh. anyways. So I, I think sometimes they feel indie films will will fly beneath the radar, and it's better not to bring attention to it than to create a lawsuit and bring more attention to it. But yeah, your experience, Jody, do you know of any any um, incidences where festivals have been sued for playing a film with no. unclear music? I, I, I've never heard of that happening. I, I would think if anything, it's more like you said, they're indemnified and they're probably if they decide we don't want to take this on, it's more a concern that we, are, we don't want to deal with having to suddenly pull this at the last minute from the schedule and it's probably more of that concern than getting sued, I would think, because indemnified. It's, you know, when you submit to a festival as a filmmaker, like you said, you, you, you take on those, that responsibility and you, you take on all the risk. Right. So for musicians, what, um, what can they gain, I wonder, out of going to a festival? Are any of you, I, I never heard if any of you had actually been to one before, or if you want to, because a lot of festivals like Sundance now have the music cafe where musicians are invited to perform. More and more festivals are including a music component, yeah. which I think is such a great synergy. And sometimes yeah. festivals will, you know, put musician CDs and the gift bags for all the filmmakers. And I remember when I worked at Sundance, musicians would come in and say, can I put my CD in all the filmmakers mailboxes? So, you know, any yeah. way to get your film to into the hands. It's, it's like when I told you that my musician friend, Kathy Compton, and she performed at a festival and I gave her CD to, um, to the music supervisor at Grey's Anatomy and it ended up on the show three years later. So, I think it's good to go network with filmmakers and get your music in there. Yeah, it's, it's a great form of art. And it's what, you know, the, we're creating for licensing is to, to support content. So it makes perfect sense to go to film festivals and, you know, put on your artist gear, like turn the volume up and just be yourself and bring your music. And if you can get a slot performing, I think that's a, that would be amazing. You know, everyone's there because they love the arts and being there as a musician, it's, you know, it's just part of the art, artistic community. It's a lovely thing. And, you know, another great place to place your music would be on a festival trailer. I've produced a few, you know, original festival trailers, which is something that plays before every film and I've needed music. And so I got Thierry from the band Panda Transport to compose the music for the Anaheim Film Festival trailer. And I've used other okay. uh, festival trailers that use indie film artist music. So that's something, um, Jody, I love your website with HD Music Now, how, or at least you always had that search function where you can search for artists by genre and sound. Um, yeah. I'm curious, I mean, that's, that's a place to shop for specific music, right? To fit your film oh yeah ab absolutely that's the purpose of that website at uh prime.hdmusicnow.com is my library excuse me and the perfect the purpose of that site is so people can come and search by genre subgenre or you can actually choose trailer music if you want to search by trailer music i love that um yeah yeah i mean there's that's that's the whole uh, intention behind a library is to make it easy and you can actually come and download right from the site and um I don't have an automated checkout process. Some sites do, but yeah, I mean, that's really interesting to hear that you, you uh, license indie artists to score trailers, not necessarily going for traditional trailer music or, 
you know, that big orchestrated thing. Um, but rather you, you put like the artistic spin on it. That's really interesting. That's, that's when I produce the trailers. Yeah. And other times yeah. I've, I've just, um, had an artist produce it for us. So they worried about clearing the music and paying the musician. Um, sure. But that's definitely yeah. an opportunity for indie music. I just think, you know, it's a whole different world for musicians to, in a way to make money. And I think film and music need to work together. It's, that's, that's the main market. So yeah. um, any questions from anybody? Cause I- Yeah, let's- Let's open up to Q&A, that's a good call. Uh, I see uh, earlier, a while back, uh, Elove had a question. What is the length of a short film versus feature film? And is there a time limit on short form content for Ken? So great question. It varies um, by festival, but the official definition, according to, I think the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences that gives out the Oscars, I think a short film has to be under 45 minutes. And then I think a feature film is technically over 70. So what happens to the content that's in between those numbers? I think that's called a featurette. But um, if you go to the Oscars website, oscars.org, you can see the official rules and how to submit films. And that's also where you can pull up the list of Academy accredited festivals if, if you, you know, for a short film, knowing where to play. Um, but to answer your question, Elise, a lot, or, um, e-love as I know you uh, a lot of festivals prefer shorts to be under 20 minutes that's their that's their sweet spot and then like the Cannes Film Festival's official competition shorts have to be under 15 minutes but um, you know theoretically the films that are the most successful the shorts that are most successful are if you can keep it under 10 minutes you're really gonna you know gonna take the festivals by storm oh. Anyone else have any questions? Well, it's just been really fascinating Laura. and just, oh yeah, Laura's raising your hand. Uh, yeah. to have the instrumental? Well, super important. Yeah, and yeah. if it's really good, filmmakers will be happy to have that. I mean, I, I see a lot of films uh, that come in that are rough cuts that still have a temp track. And usually the, I, I always joke, was this royalty free music? Cause it doesn't sound as good. Um, uh, but, you know, I'm sure you, I guess you need to network with filmmakers and get your music into their hands. Um, and that is the, that's the reason you want to be watching these films and contacting the filmmakers. If you find somebody working in a genre, a film that would fit your music, you might want to reach out to them and let them know. You, they can use your film maybe as, as a temp track and maybe they'll fall in love with it and just keep it in the film. You never know. Um, but would you also be able to compose music specifically for a scene that's already been shot? Are, are you comfortable with um, if they tell you, okay, this is going to happen in the film and I want music that sounds like this, can you score a film? Or Okay. Sure. 
I mean, Jody, is there a place where indie musicians can put, like you said, you've got your database um, yeah. and people can search. Music libraries. Music yeah, it's a good rule of, of thumb, Laura, and anyone else who's listening. Um, it's a good rule of thumb to have when you bounce your projects, when you export your final projects, if you have a vocal track, do a vocal bounce, do a um, instrumental bounce, do an acapella bounce and bounce your stems, meaning uh, group your drums together, group your guitars together, bounce your synths and everything should literally, if you were to give me the stems, if I'm an editor on a film and I ask for stems, I want the deliverables so I can drop them into my timeline and hit play and it'll sound just like your track, like start, start to finish, almost like I hit play on your MP3, exactly like I hit play on your MP3. And then what I can do as a film editor would be, I can duck out the violin or I can, you know, duck out the drums or bring up the vocals, whatever. I, I can remix it basically to picture. So that's the purpose of doing it that way. And is there a place for instrumental composers? Yes. And that would be with music libraries, production music libraries. Uh, my library is one of them. There are hundreds of music libraries around the world uh, that, are looking for music. So yes, absolutely. Jody, when I was when I worked at the film school, we had a guy who had his own record label, Sona Blast. Um, and um, mm. he once sent me a CD compilation and he said, all of these tracks are free for any of your students to use. So I had a whole little mini music library that, you know. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, Raphael, you've got your hand up. Did you have a question? Sure. Yeah. Um, all media rights is exactly what it sounds like. It means all types of media. And that means TV, DVD, satellite, um, internet, uh, theatrical, um, any type of media that you can think of. It, it, it covers all of it. Uh, a lot of times lately, I've seen all media. We want all media rights, excluding theatrical for, let's say, for Hulu or Amazon they don't need to go to theaters. So they don't need theatrical rights. So they can save some money by asking for all media rights and excluding theatrical. And if down the line, they wanna do a theatrical release, then they've gotta go back to each and every rights holder and negotiate for theatrical rights. We wanna add that on for an additional fee. Do any of them ask for in perpetuity, Jody, forever and ever, or is there always a time? Yeah, most yeah, for, for films, it's mo most common to ask for perpetuity for films and TV shows. For ads, it's different. For ads and trailers, there's usually a limited run on the campaign. Um, but yeah, for film and TV, uh, all media or all media excluding theatrical worldwide in perpetuity is the most common thing seen. Yeah. E-Love has a, has a comment, a long comment. Um... I did a voiceover for a TV commercial, which had uncleared music on it. The production company used, I had the video up on YouTube. YouTube took it down because the owner of the music found and did a cease and desist on it. Interesting. Okay. YouTube shut down my channel while this happening. They thought I had had to provide a statement. I, you know what? This is all there for all of you to read. <laughs> Elove, I don't know if you no, wanted me to read that to everyone. No, it's interesting. 
Wow. This is what happened. Yeah. Sure. Wow. Yeah. YouTube's on it. I mean, people go, people are on the defensive a, a lot when they hear, you know, I, I heard a story from someone the other day. He was actually in Target and heard his song on the overhead speakers, like in an ad, in an ad. So he was able to track down what happened and he reached out, but he didn't do it in an angry way. He reached out and said, Hey, you know, I just noticed my song got used in this. And the person that he reached out to was very, can you please tell me more like what, who are you? What song are you talking about? And they were, they were able to sort it out and he, he made it work out in his favor. Not only did he get paid, but he was able to um, maintain that relationship with this person by not coming at it aggressively. Like it sounds like this person did to you. Um, and he also was able to secure more sex in the deal that he made as part of the settlement, basically he said, you don't have to pay me what I would have been paid normally. Pay me half that, but uh, I want to guarantee that you're going to license my music three more times. So he got more syncs out of it. And it's, it's a great approach for anyone listening that heard that story that, that Elove just shared um, about basically she had a voiceover for a TV commercial there was uncleared music on it. And then the, the musician found it on YouTube and sent her a takedown notice. And YouTube actually shut down her account. Um, it wasn't and she had Love to. Who made the commercial? <laughs> right. It wasn't her. She didn't produce it. She just did the voiceover. So, um, you know, this, this is just, it happens a lot. It does happen a lot. I, I'm curious, Elove, what, what was the process like getting back? getting your channel re-enlisted by YouTube? Like how, how long did that take? Yeah. 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 It's happening a lot with the uh, royalty free companies and on the online space, just everything is accessible digitally. And a lot of people still misre misrepresent themselves. It's a, uh, it's a big problem really. But look, we, we are, um, Laura, Laura, yeah, Laura, to answer your question, we're going to talk about royalties in some other, other uh, panels um, for sure. That's a big topic we'll be talking about. But um, we're a bit over time. So I just wanted to thank you, Derek, for taking the time out with us today. And this has been eye-opening, I think, for all of us. And yeah, round of applause for Derek. And if yeah. you all have any follow-up questions, you can reach me at, um, where is the, I'll just, I'll just share my screen one last time. Filmfestprogrammer at Gmail. Can you see that email address? So yeah. there, you can always I'll, reach me there. I'm, this might live on YouTube. Are you sure you want me to put that? Yeah, it's there? a pretty generic email. <laughs> if, I, okay. right. if I get too much spam, I'll just start a new one. <laughs> okay. So, all right. Well, thanks for having me. Um, and this was, I learned a lot too. So thanks, Jody.
Great to see you, Derek. Good luck to you all, and stay in touch. Bye. See you on Clubhouse, or hear you on Clubhouse. This was a Zoom panel event, and that's why we had the opportunity to have live Q&A. If you'd like to know when these panels and events happen and would like to participate, please keep up with me on my website at licensedyourmusic.com under the events tab or come to the Facebook group at License Your Music with Jody Friedman. If you like what you're here, if you're listening on Apple Music or Spotify, whatever it might be, please leave us a review. That helps us out a ton. Our Instagram at License Your Music and of course our YouTube channel where you'll find all sorts of valuable tips, product reviews, and other things about music licensing. Thanks so much for listening. Stay cool. Peace.